Hello and welcome to Poetry in Aldborough's 2021 podcast series. Following in the footsteps of John Clare was recorded on Saturday the 6th of November during our online festival via Zoom. We hope you enjoy it. This event is hosted by Cathy Pimlet, but for now, over to Paul Stevenson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Poetry in Aldborough 2021. Welcome to this Poetry Weekend in Suffolk. We are delighted that you could join us for Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon talk and reading following in the footsteps of John Clare. Um, we have three fantastic poets performing tonight. Robert Selby, Robert Hamburger and Pam Thompson. And I'm delighted to be able to welcome our event host, Kathy Pimlet. Kathy Pimlet was born and raised in Nottingham, but has lived for most of her adult life in Covent Garden, specifically Seven Dials, home of the broadsheet and the ballad. Kathy's first full collection is due out with Verve Poetry Press in spring 2022. She has two pamphlets with the Emma Press, Elastic Glue and Goose Fair Night, and she has been widely published in magazines and anthologies. Please welcome Kathy Pimlet. Hello. Really exciting to be here at the seaside, virtually. Uh, it's a bit noisy outside my window at the moment with pedicabs playing their music, but hopefully you won't be able to hear them. Right, so I'm very pleased to introduce this event this evening, which um, is following the footsteps of John Clare. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about um, his work, but also about the response to his work from, from the three poets. So we're going to start off with a reading from Robert Selby of his recent debut collection, which are poems inspired by Suffolk. That will be followed by um, a conversation between Robert Hamburger and Pam Thompson, looking at the research behind um, Rob's book, um, A Length of Road, Finding Myself in the Footsteps of John Clare. Um, so I will introduce Robert Selby first, and then later I'll introduce Pam and Rob. So Robert Selby is a freelance writer and edits King's College London's online poetry journal, Wild Court. He co-edited Mick Imler Selected Prose in 2015. His debut pamphlet was published in 2017 in the Clutag Five Poems series. And his debut collection, The Coming Downtime, was published by Shoestring Press in 2020. Robert, over to you. Uh, thank you, Cathy. Um, thanks to Oliver for asking me to read. I'm going to read three poems from the opening sequence in the coming downtime. Um, sequence is about my late grandfather, um, including his upbringing in the small village of Orford, just down the road from Alderborough on the Suffolk coast. Uh, my grandfather was born in Orford in 1919 in what was known as the second coming downtime, i.e. the agricultural depression after the First World War. Uh, many of his male forebears worked in equine trades, such as horsemen and groom, uh, but there was plenty of poverty around, as you can imagine, at that time. Other family members were farm labourers, just like John Clare and his father over in Northamptonshire a century before. 
Um, my grandfather was conscripted in World War II and was for a time posted in Kent, um, where he lived uh, for the rest of his life. Um, but his Suffolk heritage sort of retained a sort of aura for him and in turn us, his family. And the first poem I'm going to read is about Orford, and I will just try and screen share it for you. Uh, hopefully this is the poem is now visible and I will read Orford he grew up beside Europe's largest vegetated shingle spit across it North Sea winds bring word of mermen and invasion MOD buildings stand disused on the peninsula, softened by time in the hearts of the locals who call them pagodas. In the war, a friendly destroyer some miles offshore mistook the village for the nearby firing range of Sudbourne Battle, shelling the road he was born and raised in. The special constable rang up the Navy and asked, please, would they kindly cease fire? No one was lost. Like much of old England now, it stars in colour supplements. The Crown and Castle has become a high-end hotel and restaurants owned by a TV personality. The tamed Ness, a grade one site of special scientific interest. But weak glows in night windows still hint at a hearth comfort stolen against the undying winds that buffet the grassy tombs of the long-quashed kings the East Angles. Against the fen demons that, retold by flame, may burst over the threshold into the real. That expressed before King George II's visit still rings true as the church bells peal. If the king ask, who are you then? We humbly answer, Orford men. Who else dare ask, we answer bluff. We're Orford men, and that's enough. And I'll just move on to the second poem, if I can. Here we go, The End of the Horse Age. Um, as I said earlier, um, many of my grandfather's male forebears going down the centuries had, had been involved in equine trades, grooms, ostlers, coachmen, horsemen, wheelwrights. Obviously, in the 1930s, when he was growing up, those trades were on their way out. Uh, and my grandfather worked from a young age as a gardener instead in the gardens of the landowners and the upper classes in the Orford area. And I think being a gardener is, in fact, one of the things that John Clare also tried when trying to find his way in life. Um, this 1930s period was at an important sort of hinge point between the disappearance of one ancient age and the beginning of the, of the one we now live in, sort of the petrol age. This poem's called the, the End of the Horse Age. With history yet to give him a greater role, he cycles many dawn miles to work the big estates. 
lunchtime, he returns for rabbit, suet pudding, then draining his water in a doorway's fallow light with no risk of calories dawdling to fat, he sets out again and so on every day. The beasts he clicks his tongue at, peddling past, Suffolk punch, built to last. Chestnut heavies with names like Pegasus, bred to lack fetlock feathers, fine on a brewer's or a milkman's dray, but glue for clods in the field. Gods of the plough they are, good doers, 17 hands high, with a rump like a farm wife's arse and the eyes of a Christian. Behind him, as he pedals on, his white twill shirt too sweat stuck to billow, the gods turn and face the final furrow. Later, coasting wearily home in the gloaming, he sees an unblinkered beast spraying smoke in the top field, light from its side lamps shining off maker's plates cast from melted down horse brasses. I'll just finish with a, a third poem uh, about returning to Orthod in 2008 um, for my gr grandfather's interment. Uh, interment. Um, yeah. Um, thanks for listening. And I'll hand over to Pat and Robert at the end after, after this third poem. The Daylight. Leaving the mason with his cement gun to glue down the desk-style headstone. We enter the church. The door thuds shut. A musty silence, but for our footsteps. The immortal draught in the tie-beamed roof hurrying the candles we light. A hurried light setting the fonts lions and wild men dancing. Along the south wall, the great war memorial bears more names than Orford has roofs. A congregation that would cram the pews long since ripped out, replaced by Victorian schoolroom chairs with little Bible holders on their backs. We go among them, admiring the knitted hassocks depicting local landmarks, crests. The W.I., Methodist Church, Scout Group. The houses in the road he grew up in, the road shelled by friendly fire. We're given the all clear. Against the wind, we arrange favourites in the ink well to soften the newness of the sandstone. Pink tulips, white narcissi, purple speedwell. We take photos, then all cram in for one family with two members unthere. Divining the smokehouse by its smoke, one of us buys eels. We watch the fish boats and tugs clank against their moorings on the glittering nests. Time and a long pilgrimage narrows the daylight between mourner and tourist. Thank you very much for having me and um, I'll pass you back over now.
Thank you very much. That was really wonderful. I had such a, a lot of specific detail that uh, was very evocative and, and, and really lovely to hear. Such a wonderful place, Orford Ness, and I think you you you, you took us to it. Uh, so um, the next section is um, Robert Hamburger and Pam Thompson. Robert has been shortlisted and highly commended for Forward Prices, appearing in the Forward Book of Poetry 2020. He has been awarded a Hawthornden Fellowship. His poetry has fe been featured as the Guardian Poem of the Week and in British, American, Irish and Japanese anthologies. He has published six poetry pamphlets and four full-length collections. Blue Wallpaper, published by Waterloo Press, was shortlisted for the 2020 Polari Prize. His prose memoir with poems, A Length of Road, Finding Myself in the Footsteps of John Clare, was published by John Murray in June 2021. Pam Thompson is a writer and educator based in Leicester. Her publications include The Japan Quiz with Red Beck, Red Beck Press, Show Date and Time with Smith Doorstep, Doorstop, I always say that wrong, and Strange Fashion with the Pin Drop Press. She was a 2019 Hawthornden Fellow. So I'll hand over to Pam and Rob now um, and hear more about the, the life and work of John Clare, but also Rob's own response to that. Thank you. Thank you, Cathy. Thank you, Robert. That's wonderful poems. It's fabulous to be at Poetry Oldborough, even more so that I'm sharing the event with my good friend, Rob Hamburger. I've known Rob, well, many years. And I first met Rob just after he'd done his walk, which features in this fantastic memoir, A Length of Road, Finding Myself in the Footsteps of John Clare. Rob will begin by introducing his book to give it some context. And he and I will share the reading, the selection of poems from the book, uh, followed by the first part of the conversation. And um, after that, Rob will share some of the prose sections of his book, and then we'll carry on having a conversation, but the focus will really be on poetry and class. So it's over to Rob to give us some background. Thank you, Pam. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming. Um, as Pam said, I'm going to be reading from A Length of Road, which, in fact, took me 25 years to finish. Um, lots of redrafting, lots of self-doubt and a bit of self-sabotage along the way, which we, we may talk about later. Um, just to explain, A Length of Road is basically um, about me retracing John Clare's walk from an asylum in Epping Forest. He, he walked home in 1841 from Epping Forest to his home near Peterborough. Um, and it took him four days over 85 miles. He slept rough for three nights. And I had this idea to retrace his walk. Um, which I did in 1995. I should say it was six weeks after my wife and I separated. So I was not in a good place at all, um, mentally or emotionally. I too slept rough for three nights like John Clare and did my best to retrace the walk along the Great North Road. 
Um, I should say that Claire himself wrote a journal of the walk. Um, it's only about five pages or so. And if you haven't read it, I would really recommend it. It's called A Journey Out of Essex, and it's probably on Google. And um, Ian Sinclair called it one of the wonders of English prose, and I think he's right. So just to start, I will read from the preparations section of A Length of Road, which will just give you a little bit of context, and then Pam and I will read six poems. Um, we're hoping to screen share the poems, but we decided it's probably best if I don't screen share the prose. So, preparations, 10th of February, 1995. I spread out four ordnance survey maps, edge to edge on my front room carpet. I'm trying to find John Clare's route from the asylum in Epping Forest back to his home in Northborough, near Peterborough. In July 1841, Claire escaped from what he saw as a prison and walked for four days over 85 miles to get home, sleeping rough with little to eat or drink, no money and no map. For the past few months, I've been hatching a crazy plan to retrace his walk. My belly's on the maps now. My elbows dent the paper and my fingers sliding over roads and gradients to find the names mentioned in Claire's account. Enfield Town, Stevenage, Potton, Buckton, Stilton, Peterborough, Walton, Warrington. They're simply words to me. They don't mean anything yet. I follow a jagged heart line with my finger, reaching towards Claire's home. I admire his achievement, but I haven't learnt how to read the roads, and I'm no seasoned walker. I fold the maps away like four paper concertinas. I'm a little dispirited by the challenge I've set myself. Who am I trying to kid? I sit in my home in silence with my children asleep upstairs and my wife out tonight. Why do I plan to leave them, to walk back to them? Why should I, an unknown poet and social worker from the East End, with three young kids and a marriage in trouble, choose this time to ape John Clare, a great Northamptonshire poet and agricultural labourer? Why does his life and work speak to me like some sort of kindred spirit, as if I'm lonely for brotherhood across 150 years. We both strayed into writing from non-bookish families, misfits hoping poetry might solve our lives. But our circumstances are so different. I've no right to claim kinship. Yet I've got it in my head to copy his walk this Easter, the nearest gap of four days I can find. So far, 
the only thing I'm clear about is wanting to discover some of what Claire went through on his walk by putting myself through a trial of miles, thinking I might capture a tenth of his experience. His shine might rub off on me. What else am I hoping to prove? So that's how the book begins. And um, there are, it's, it's a genre fluid book. It's a memoir. It's a, it, a sort of biography of Claire. It's um, a nature, it includes nature writing and it includes 28 poems. Pam and I are going to read six of those from the 28. I'm going to read three that are in John Clare's imagined voice and Pam will read three of um, spoken by women who Clare met on his journey. I should say that each poem begins with an epigraph from Clare's journal. And we'll start with the first poem, which is called Escape. Clare's epigraph is July 18th, 1841. Felt very melancholy. Went a walk in the forest in the afternoon. Fell in with some gypsies, one of whom offered to assist in my escape from the madhouse. Am I coming or going? When you dawdle under beech leaves this evening, look both ways like mother said, the red road or the white one, unhinge myself, unhook this sack of stones, walking out on a trail of breadcrumbs through the wood. Am I coming or going, the red road or the white? They're open as a woman's legs, Run after lines until your ink goes dry. Nuts and berries patter on my plate. Eat, escape, eat it before the trap shuts. Why do you wait? I'm too blind for the journey. Mother, it's getting dark. Mister, say which way. And now Pam will read Lace, and I'll read the brief epigraph from Claire's journal. I called in a house to light my pipe, in which was a civil old woman and a young country wench, making lace on a cushion as round as a globe. Windmills, brides and butterflies rise from my pillow. Fingers twist our living until candle lights. Pennies a yard, shillings a week. I'll weave a snow kiss when it's warranted. Squint at bobbins. Whatever questions come from the journeyman who sucks his pipe on our doorstep. This maze under my knuckles, a lover's knot. And this next poem is from the second day of Claire's walk. It's called North or South. And Claire's journal said, I then suddenly forgot which was North or South. And though I narrowly examined both ways, 
I could see no tree or bush or stone heap that I could recollect I had passed. So I went on mile after mile, almost convinced I was going the same way I came. The old question, where's your life going? Answer, my life's going home. That drums two boots on a puddled highway, walking home, walking the drumbeat home. It's only the heart's percussion, cracking hip joints, knees and ankles, on this road where I'd run barefoot if I trusted the route rang true. Walk a circle without hitting the sea. Home's a pebble to suck and choke on, spat out before it's swallowed, rattling north or south, back the way I came. This next poem is from the third day and it's called A Tall Gypsy. And Claire wrote, I saw a tall gypsy come out of the lodge gate and make down the road. I got up and went on to the next town with her. She cautioned me on the way to put something in my hat to keep the crown up and said in a lower tone, you'll be noticed. But not knowing what she hinted, I took no notice and made no reply. I live this skin wanting no other, not to be some milk face supping indoors. They quake politely when I read their smiles, as if I'll blab which husband bores, who dies tomorrow. We side with each other for 10 furlings into town, talk of heading north and why swifts won't land before I warn his gawky look. Ape them, or you'll be noticed. Straighten your hat, stiffen its crown, and you can skip their questions. Take a shortcut, drop the road you're on. And these last two poems that Pam and I will read are from the fourth day, from Claire's last day. The first is called Over the Stones, and Claire wrote, I could scarcely make a walk of it over the stones and being half ashamed to sit down in the street, I forced to keep on the move. When the body breaks its knees, the spirit whips its snorting horse and drives him harder. I'm walking to God saying, can I have not happiness exactly, but calm, sleeping on the breast of the woman I love, with nowhere to go. And the last poem from this section is um, called The Woman. And I should just explain one of Claire's delusions in the asylum and on his walk home was that he had married his first love, Mary Joyce bigamously 
and had also married his second wife, Patty. In fact, he, he never married Mary. Mary had in fact been killed in a fire three years before Claire's walk. Claire thought he was returning home to Mary and he wasn't aware of her death. So this last poem is spoken by Claire's wife, Patty. She managed to find him in Warrington, several miles from their home and came to rescue him, basically. Claire wrote, when nearing me, the woman jumped out and caught fast hold of my hands and wished me to get into the cart, but I refused and thought her either drunk or mad. But when I was told it was my second wife, Patty, I got in and was soon at Northborough. He blathers Mary like a love-whipped boy. He's blind to me, my scorched man, too long in the sun. If it rained, who licked drops off his lashes, promised him tomorrow would be dry. Four years waiting and still no cure, but I can mend him. Patch his elbows, rest the shade of fingers over his eyes. I sang him asleep after the children, drunk from his wooing and glad to be so. Even now, squeezing his hands again, saying my name until he remembers, I wake foot to finger at his side. Thank you, Pam. You asked yourself the question, Rob, why does his life and work speak to me like some sort of kindred spirit? Why does it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, um, I in fact, first discovered Claire when I was 15 years old. I think he's one of those writers that weaves in and out of my life. And I think sometimes when you discover a writer quite early on, it, uh, when you're at such an impressionable age, they stay with you somehow. Um, my art teacher lent me a book of his poems and I was knocked out by them. Um, I loved their simplicity, their directness. The love poems were overwhelming at that time for a teenager. And of course, the nature poems, his, his sense of attention to detail was just incredible. Um, and in a way I'd never experienced with 19th century writers or poets. Um, and my wife, uh, came from Northamptonshire and I when we married I moved to live in Northamptonshire and Claire is very much seen as a Northamptonshire poet in fact he he lived near Peterborough really but um, I think Northamptonshire claim him as their own yeah. um, he he lived for the last 25 23 years in Northampton asylum so um, but yes I I think they're I've always admired Claire. And although this book took me 25 years to finish, what it did give me was 25 years of exploring Claire, getting to know him more, reading the four biographies of him. And mm. I have to say, I 
I ended up admiring him even more. He's one of those poets, the more you get to know him, mm. the more your admiration grows, I think. Yeah, sure. I can I definitely understand that. And, and as far as the walk went, so you read Claire's journal account of his war, and you, you say that you knew instantly that you wanted to retrace it. And you, the subtitle of your memoir is called Finding Myself in the Footsteps of John Clare. So what did you hope for by doing this walk? And what did you find having made it? Okay, thank you. Now, what did I hope for doing this walk? What is interesting, I think, sometimes as writers, we, we work totally by instinct. So I have no idea why I thought I want to retrace his walk, but I knew I wanted to. I'd, I'd only read his journal of the walk about a year or so before I decided to do it. Um, I think I... So it, it was in tribute to him. I think it was in admiration of him. And I think there was something about just trying to put myself in his shoes or in his boots, trying to see um, what I would experience, because I'm not a great walker, really. Um, so I, I had to try and rehearse the walk a bit and start, you know, walking in my walking boots for a while. And um, I ended up with loads of blisters, as some of our, our um, audience members who are, who are long walkers will understand. Um, and the whole idea of finding myself, I think I didn't know that that would happen, really. I think all I knew is that I wanted to do the walk. As I said, it happened at a time of real crisis in my life. I think there are times in all our lives when our circumstances just flip over, really. And obviously separation from my wife and not living with my young children was incredibly difficult. And that... that that is one of the themes that the book tries to grapple with. What, what is home? What is family? What does fatherhood mean if you're not able to live with your children? Um, what I learned, what I did find was uh, resilience and perseverance. I think when you're at that pitch of walking 20 miles or more a day, walking sometimes along the A1, which was a, a daft thing to do, really. But then the Great North Road is, is now partly, parts of it are the A1. So um, I did learn resilience and I learned to simply persevere, just that idea of you've just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that obviously was symbolic about my life at the time I think about you just have to keep going so I didn't know that I'd have that resilience until I reached the end and I I learned that through putting myself through the fire I think really yes thank you you Claire is a very att attentive poet and to nature and to feelings and um, a similar quality of attentiveness permeates your writing, I think, um, your memoir, what you experienced and how you make it so vivid for us. So how, how was or is the conscious attentiveness, is conscious attentiveness a quality, do you think, in your writing? 
Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad you think it is. Um, I mean, I I I love that aspect of Claire's work that he just looks, you know, and he observes things that we may see as quite mundane, and of course he makes them wonderful and magical by simply observing. So I think any writer can learn that if if you just observe, that will give you a way forward in your writing. Um, so that I'm glad that attention to detail is there. Mm. In the walk itself, I had a dictaphone, so I was able to literally say what both what I was feeling, but also what I was seeing. Um, and I that helped me when I replayed the trans I, I uh, replayed the tapes and then transcribed them. That helped me um, realize that. It is all about detail. It is all about looking around you, trying to learn from what you're seeing. Again, I'm not a great naturalist either. So, you know, Claire was brought up in the country. I was brought up in the East End of London. But also what Claire is great about is um, saying that he doesn't know what he's looking at. There's a wonderful poem, an un untitled sonnet, where for about 10 lines, he's looking at a nest and he doesn't know what it is. And he only finds out in the last four lines that it's in fact a, a squirrel's nest. But he's just great at, at admitting what he doesn't know, but still looking, really. Yeah. And as I said, I think that's a great lesson for writers. We, we can yeah. learn a lot from Claire. I agree entirely. I mean, one other thing I noticed, perhaps before we go on to listen to you reading some of the poem, is also in the prose and the poetry, a sense of disorientation. Yeah. Um, in Claire's writing, in your own, is it a quest, a quest for equilibrium, perhaps? I mean, I'm wondering if you could say something about that. Do you sense that too? Yes, I think... Um, it was a time of disequilibrium, but obviously it was a, a search for equilibrium. And I did, in the memoir, I wanted to really respect and honour that experience. So I learnt from uh, Helen MacDonald from Ages for Hawk. She's talking about bereavement and, and that my memoir does cover bereavement of a, a very close friend, Clifford. But um, I really wanted to explore a sense of disequilibrium. And Helen MacDonald, very occasionally, there's fireworks going off as I'm speaking I here. <laughs> Helen <laughs> MacDonald very occasionally talks in a, a almost a, a mad voice and in, in H's for Hawk. And I did learn a lot from that, that part of respecting the experience I went through is that um, I was at such a pitch that sometimes there was um, confusion, there was a, a sense of disorientation. And Claire's prose account captures that very well. I do quote a great deal from Claire's prose account because he does capture that sense of disorientation when you're walking and walking day after day. He had very little to eat, um, obviously sleeping rough as well. So 
I, I wanted to respect what he went through, but also what I went through and use my language to do so. Yeah, thank you. So could you then, Rob, maybe read some of the prose to give us some more insight into Claire and his writing? Yes, thank you. Um, I'm going to read a bit from the second day that is about Claire's writing. Um, as I said, part of the form of the book is literary criticism. I do try and focus in on Claire's writing. So here goes. Seamus Heaney said, Claire refused to cooperate. Once upon a time, John Clare was lured to the edge of his word horizon and his tonal horizon, looked about him eagerly, tried out a few new words and accents, and then willfully and intelligently withdrew and dug in his local heels. While it was an intelligent decision when he faced the page, this willfulness cost him his career as a poet. It cost him success in the marketplace, even if that decision has brought him more readers today. After his first book triumphed, he began to be blanked critically and commercially, literally overlooked, as if he was no longer writing anything of note. How did an isolated poet under financial and artistic pressures to conform decide not to censor himself rather than knuckling down and behaving? That he produced such a self-affirming body of work remains virtually heroic. After wrangles with patrons and publisher about a poem that used a rhyme with shit in his first edition, he was annoyed by the removal of two poems in the third edition without his permission and wrote to his publisher in July 1820, I think to please all and offend all, we should put out 215 pages of blank leaves and call it Claire in fashion. The gold is licked off the gingerbread. I have lost my tail by it, but never mind. Despite these demands, he kept faith with his own estimation of his work. Towards the end of Don Juan, mostly written at High Beach, he states, Though laurel wreaths my brows did ne'er environ, I think myself as great a bard as Byron. The painful rhyme's a joke, mimicking Byron's Don Juan, but it remains a radical self-assertion from a working-class poet by then virtually ignored by the public, living in an asylum, his recent poetry rarely published. He dares to think he's equal to Lord Byron, and by writing those lines, he retains his sense of worth, whether laurel leaves flicker against his forehead or not. Years ago, when England was first discovering her, Sharon Olds said to me after a poetry reading at the City Gallery in Leicester, 
If I was writing wrong, it was the only way I knew. Claire would understand that sentiment. In a letter to a friend, he wrote, All I wish now is to stand upon my own bottom as a poet, without any apology as to want of education or anything else. And I think I'd now like to read Claire's sonnet, Trespass, which was written shortly before he was admitted to High Beach Asylum. Trespass by John Clare. I dreaded walking where there was no path and pressed with cautious tread the meadow swath and always turned to look with wary eye and always feared the owner coming by. Yet everything about where I had gone appeared so beautiful I ventured on. And when I gained the road where all are free, I fancied every stranger frowned at me, and every kinder look appeared to say, you've been on trespass in your walk today. I've often thought the day appeared so fine, how beautiful if such a place were mine. But having naught, I never feel alone and cannot use another's as my own. So Claire's other trespass is into the beautiful forbidden country of literature, where he has to keep walking where there was no path. Adam Phillips calls him a trespasser in the poetic tradition. And a reviewer of his second collection, The Village Minstrel, complained about the evil of incompetent intruders into the walks of literature. Claire said he and his fellow working class poets, quotes, are looked upon as intruders and stray cattle in the fields of the muses. So Trespass is a sonnet that opens with dread and caution, but it pushes the poet and the reader forward because everything appeared so beautiful. So why not dare to keep writing, keep walking? He understands that the fields he doesn't own, the literature he can't quite claim may not be his, but that won't stop him walking and thinking. And I'd just like to requote those last four lines of the sonnet. I've often thought the day appeared so fine. How beautiful if such a place were mine. But having naught, I never feel alone and cannot use another's as my own. It's an oddly ambivalent conclusion with naught and never and cannot, three negatives. The poet who has nothing sounds proud about never feeling alone, presumably because he belongs to a class that is accustomed to having nothing. If he knows another's place can't be his own, he turns ownership on its head by making something out of nothing, his own poem.
Thank you. It's um, interest with Claire feels very self-conscious, doesn't he? That he's being stared at, he's transgressed boundaries. Um, it's a very layered poem about economics and class and transgression. So, Rob, what choices do you as make as a working class poet in regards to subject and language, would you say? Yes, I would. I think I need to start perhaps with when I was walking, um, the whole experience that led to me thinking about trespass was I walked past a huge sign at the side of the road that said, private property, keep out. And I think that made me think about being a working class poet and that sometimes literature can feel like private property and we're meant to keep out. And obviously you've experienced this yourself as a, as a working class writer, you then start to think, okay, I seem to have this itch for writing. What am I gonna do about it? Do mm -hmm. I keep out or do I actually think I need to consider the language I use and make that as direct as possible? I think when I began writing poetry, I think it was almost like a political decision that I was going to use direct language, language that people of my class could understand, that they wouldn't be put off by, that they may not understand contemporary poetry or classical references or cerebral poetry, but that if I could get through to them on an emotional level, on a gut level, and also write about subjects I knew, write about my aunts singing at the end of a drunken party or whatever, you know, write about my block of flats in, in Whitechapel, that somehow if I could use those subjects and honour them in my poetry, um, that would, I suppose, respect the class I come from I wouldn't be a class traitor. <laughs> I, would, I would try and say the idea that poetry is for everyone. Um, even a writer like Virginia Woolf, who I do quote, who viewed herself as an outsider, she said, literally, literature is no one's private ground. Literature is common ground. Let us trespass freely. If commoners and outsiders like ourselves can use literature, then she saw that as, as a liberation, really. Mm. And I, th I think I agree with Wolf. I'm with her on that. I don't yeah. know how you felt, Pam, with your own experience about both subject and language from a working class background. Yeah, mine was like a confidence issue. I mean, yeah. lack of confidence, lack of self-confidence. You mentioned you yeah. didn't come from a bookish background. I didn't particularly, although I had a very encouraging mother who yeah. encouraged me to read, encouraged me not necessarily in poetry. So sure. it was that kind of not knowing where to go, not, you know, not having confidence in what I was doing. School yeah. encouraged a bit, you know, being good at English, in inverted commerce. Sure. But really, sure. um, many years I didn't know about competitions. I didn't know about things when I was eligible, many, like the Gregory's and things that you could enter. Yeah. Um, so it took a while, I suppose, you know, late on, really, when I got going. 
Um, yeah. we, talk, we, we, we talked before about dialect, haven't we, Rob? And we've talked about lots of poets now choosing to, to, to write in a certain language or, or like we talked about Liz Berry, for example. Yes, I, I think it is a political decision to use the language that you speak at home or in, your, in the street or, you know, um, and... Claire used a lot of dialect. I don't use it much, but we now do have Romany poets. Obviously, a lot of Scottish poets use Scots. Um, and it, I think it's a liberation because it does say these words are equally as valid. Um, so it, it really does even come down to the language that I think we use as poets and that we feel confident in using. Um, and I think the other thing I have to say about Claire and why he's important to me is I think working class writers and other underrepresented writers, we do hunt out our forebears, really. And Claire was one of our forebears. I think he very much is representative of a number of the dilemmas that working class writers still face. But even the fact that he, you know, in the 19th century was confident in using dialect. Um, you talk about that self-doubt and Claire must have had it. But amazingly, this guy ended up writing 3000 poems. So, you know, three quarters of them were unpublished during his lifetime. Mm -hmm. But he he kept going that that lesson of resilience and perseverance i'd say that to all the underrepresented writers who are in our audience today and i know that it's been great that poetry in aldborough i think has has shone a beacon on those underrepresented writers. There's been loads of them reading at this festival and i celebrate that and yeah. um, Absolutely. As I, as I know you do. I do indeed. And we could talk about this for a long time, but I'm very conscious sure. of the time. Yeah. And so I think we're going to round off with the final poem, Rob. You... Yes, it, it was basically, the, it's the final poem in the book. Um, just to bring people up to date, when Claire got home, unfortunately, his, his mental health was not resolved. He, he remained at home for another five months, but um, it was a time of great pressure for him. He finished um, uh, Don Juan and nearly finished Child Harold, which is a long, complex sequence of poems. Um, and he wrote, uh, he obviously finished his journal. He wrote some wonderful prose observations of nature, but his, his mental health continued to deteriorate. And I think Patty had the very difficult decision of thinking of her children, really. So in the end, Patty had to um, contact Claire's patron, who arranged for two doctors to reassess his mental health. And he was moved to Northampton General Lunatic Asylum just after Christmas in 1841. He was there for the next 23 years and died there. Um, and unfortunately, Patty never saw him again. Um, but saying that, this guy still wrote. He wrote 800 poems in the asylum 
And um, this last poem is imagined in Patty's voice, and it's imagining her 20 years after Claire had moved into the asylum. So it's called Widow Claire, and it starts with a, a brief epigraph from Edward Storey's biography of Claire, A Right to Song. Within a few years, Patty even became known as Widow Clare. So sure were the local gossips that her husband was put away for good and would never be seen again. Words went out with the candle at night. We're a wedding of skin. The smell of him dug in my fingernails. His cough at my shoulder again if I shut my eyes. He's written ink to me, this man I picked, bruised as an apple from wet grass. He was my fire in a sooty corner while the children slept. I try making do with drizzle now I've tasted rain. I blame words worming inside his forehead, loosening his tongue. Unspeakable things scaring the children until I gave him up to the doctors. It takes a slow breath to say it's 20 years since I've seen him. I used to hope he'd walk home after winter, stroke the new lines above my eyebrow without looking for another woman behind my back. He'd give his name to the air beside my name, as if he knows where I stand at last and who I am. What more do you want to hear? How he held a buttercup at my throat, made me believe its tiny halo caught the sun under my chin that first morning. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Pam. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was just so such a generous reading and discussion. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, so touching. Uh, and I really feel that Claire was present in, 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 in your own poems, um, Rob. Really, really felt that. Thank you. So That's great. I want to, on behalf of everybody, as we can't uh, all clap together, to say thank you to all of you, to Robert, Rob and Pam, for a wonderful event. And before everybody runs away, I just want to let you know that um, Poetry in Oldborough now has the capacity on their front of their website for us to make donations um, if we've enjoyed the events that we have attended or will be attending. Uh, it is pay as you can. And of course, it is only if, if it's possible for you to do that. Poetry in Oldborough is volunteer-led and totally relies on donations and sponsorship. So if you can, have a look at the front of the website and, and make a small donation, which will be much appreciated, I'm sure. The next event is at seven o'clock and looks really intriguing. Poetry, Popular Culture and Video Games with Maria Sledmore, Sledmere, Callum Roger, Matthew Hay, and Emma Filtness. So thank you once again for everybody for coming and listening. And thank you to Robert, 
Pam and Rob, you've given us a wonderful event.